Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We're looking at Mark chapter 6 this morning. We've been working through this gospel. And over the last few chapters, we've seen Jesus' reputation for his teaching and his astonishing miracles spreading further around the region of Galilee. We've seen Jesus' reputation gather crowds to himself. We've seen his reputation, his works inspire faith in some like Jairus and, and like the sick woman. And we've also seen, of course, his reputation lead to offense and rejection in Nazareth. Now today, as his reputation continues to spread, Jesus' name and mighty works come to the ears of the ruler of the region of Galilee, namely King Herod. Now, there are three different King Herods in the New Testament, so when we read King Herod, we have to know who we're talking about here. There was Herod the Great, who ruled over all of the area of Israel around the time of Jesus' birth. That would, of course, have been the Herod of interacting with the wise men and killing the baby boys in Bethlehem. But Herod the Great died several years after uh, Jesus' birth. You remember Joseph brought the baby and Mary back when Herod had died. And at his death, he divided the kingdom, the area of Israel, into four pieces that were each ruled over by one of his sons. And the region of Galilee was ruled over by one of his sons named Herod Antipas. And that is the Herod we uh, meet in our story today. There's then a, a third Herod who's a grandson of Herod, a great, a nephew of Herod today. He appears in Acts chapter 12. But today we're focusing on this Herod Antipas ruling over the region of Galilee, whose reaction to Jesus' reputation causes Mark to go back and relate what had happened to John the Baptist. And we haven't heard of John the Baptist since chapter 1. What has he been up to? Well, he has died. And we get the details of that in our story in Mark chapter 6. So let's read together Mark 6, verses 14 to 29. This is God's word. King Herod heard of it, that is all that Jesus was doing, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, 
for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all of Scripture that you give us, even passages like this that are gruesome in their details. And we ask that you would use it in our hearts to draw us nearer to you. And we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. As our story opens this morning, Herod is displaying all the classic signs of a guilty conscience. Now, the great literature of the world gives us many examples of guilty consciences on display. Maybe you think of Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth sleepwalking through the night, trying to wash her hands of the blood, of the guilt of Duncan's murder. Or maybe you think of Dostoevsky's Raskolnikov, who was convinced every time he ran into a policeman that that policeman knew of his murders and was ready to arrest him. Or if we're talking about the great literature of the world, you might also think of Calvin and Hobbes. You might remember when Calvin broke his dad's binoculars, the pair that his dad told him to be very careful with. And as they sit at dinner together, his dad calmly eating, Calvin knows he's just letting him stew in his guilt. He's waiting for the hammer to drop, and when his dad turns to say, Calvin, please pass the... Calvin breaks down into hysterics of confession and apology. After a brief response of anger, his dad said, it's okay, Calvin. The binoculars are not that big of a deal in the long run. And Calvin says, they're not? And his dad says, nope, 10 years from now, you'll be wrecking my car. So take that for pessimism or realism, whichever you would like. But we know what a guilty conscience looks like, and our passage today brings us face to face with another one. When Jesus' reputation for miracles and mighty works begins to circulate, there's much speculation about who this Jesus is. Some say, well, this is Elijah who is supposed to come right before the Messiah. Others say, well, no, it's not Elijah, but it it is another prophet, a prophet like the days of old. But Herod's guilty conscience believes the least likely explanation, that Jesus is actually John the Baptist returned from the dead to plague him. Now, why would Herod believe such an unlikely explanation? Well, Mark pauses to explain how Herod had treated John and how John's death came about. And as we follow the story, the one thing that is repeatedly clear is that Herod's actions are driven at every step of the story by opinions of other people. What do other people think about me? That is what drives him. In fact, I think the main point of our story is well summarized by Proverbs twenty-nine, twenty-five: The fear of man lays a snare. The fear of man lays a snare, and Herod falls into it this morning. Well, let's, let's look at the story. We see this play out first in verses 17 to 20, where Herod's actions are driven by his reputation among the people of Galilee. As Mark explains, Herodias had been the wife of Herod's brother Philip, but Herod and Herodias had met and mutually decided that they would make a better couple, 
And so Herod dumped his wife, and Herodias left Philip, and they teamed up. And they did get married, but they did not live happily ever after. History tells us that within a few years of this episode, Herod's dumped wife's father raised an army and attacked Herod and defeated him soundly. And possibly because of that, just a few years later, the Roman emperor Caligula banished Herod and Herodias to Gaul on the far western edge of the empire. But all of these things were just beginning to take place as John the Baptist's ministry began. And you may remember that the central focus of John's ministry was to call people to repent of their sins in order to prepare them to meet the Messiah. John called the common people to repent. John called the Pharisees to repent. And we find out here that John even called Herod himself to repent, condemning him for taking his brother's wife and breaking the seventh commandment. Now Herodias clearly bore a grudge against John right from the start, and she would have liked to have fully removed him from the scene, if you will, from the very beginning. But Herod is concerned for his reputation. That is the driving criteria of his decisions and actions, and he finds himself caught between a rock and a hard place, as you typically will if you try to cater to people's opinions. On the one hand, Herod cannot have a guy going out throughout Israel denouncing him as an unrighteous breaker of God's law. That will not do well for his reputation or his political stability. The Jewish historian Josephus explains that fearing John's influence on the people, Herod decided to strike first before his work led to an uprising in Galilee. So that's one concern. However, we also read that Herod feared John. Why did Herod fear John? Well, for two reasons. Matthew, in his gospel, tells us that he feared John's popularity amongst the people. He knew that the people loved John and considered him a prophet, so he can't kill him without also jeopardizing the people's opinions. But here in Mark 6, we also read that Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. Here is a man who spoke the truth, who walked righteously before God. And Herod fears to raise a hand against him. And so the result is this sort of uh, halfway situation for Herod where he keeps him in prison but doesn't kill him. Where he's perplexed at what John says and yet he hears him gladly. It's an unusual situation, isn't it? To be perplexed at what he said and yet to hear him gladly. But I think we know a little bit of what that feels like. To know that someone is speaking truth and yet not to want to change and listen to that truth. I think to a lesser extent, we can do the same sometimes. We can come to church and and be glad to hear a good sermon that's proclaiming truth and maybe even appreciate that feeling of conviction that we leave with because that very feeling of conviction tells us that we care about righteousness and holiness. Even if that feeling of conviction seems to go away around halftime of the Eagles game and nothing ever changes in our life whatsoever. But here's Herod, this double-minded man who kept John safe and listened to him gladly but kept him in prison because he feared his criticism and the damage to his reputation. But if Herod felt like he was stuck between a rock and a hard place considering his reputation among the people, things get worse. His solution doesn't last Not surprisingly, more people's opinions come into play. 
And so the second thing we see in verses 21 to 29 is that the situation shifts and Herod becomes trapped between what the people will think of him and what the nobles, commanders, and leading men of Galilee will think of him. It all started with Herod's birthday. As kings are wont to do on their birthday, he throws a party and he invites the leading men of the area. There's feasting, there's drinking, there's entertainment, and a particularly pleasing moment came when Herodias' daughter, we know from history that her name was Salome, danced for the guests. Now, commentators love to speculate on this dance and talk about, well, was it an inappropriate or a salacious dance? And the text just doesn't tell us that at all, and so we need to be careful what what we uh, imply. But we do know that she came and danced And Herod and his guests enjoyed the dance, and probably both to reward his stepdaughter and also to demonstrate his generosity and wealth to all of his guests, Herod offers a reward, a gift, anything Salome would like, even up to half his kingdom. Of course, the offer of up to half his kingdom is is hyperbolic. Uh, He is not actually going to give half his kingdom. In fact, he can't. Remember, Herod was just a puppet ruler, and one of the, the stipulations is that he can't even give away a single acre of property without Rome's permission. But this phrase was often used, you may remember it from the book of Esther also, by kings as an expression of an oath, a guarantee that the giver will fulfill his promise to give a gift as he's offering Salome doesn't appear to expect this offer, but she doesn't want to waste it, so she checks in with mom to see if she has any good ideas of what she should ask for. And Herodias realizes this is her chance. She says, ask for the head of John the Baptist. Now, I'm not sure what what, what I would expect, but I would sort of expect that a daughter would think this isn't a very good use of her, her one wish. You know, as a child, if you think I can, I can have a wish, anything that I want, I don't think mom's idea would be what I want. But uh, Salome seems to be very much in favor of this because the text says she immediately came with haste and said, I want the head of John the Baptist at once. So she is fully on her mother's team. But here, you can imagine the scene, can't you? There's great food, great wine, great dancing. Everyone's laughing, enjoying the party, and probably at this moment making bets as to what this girl's going to ask for. I think she's going to ask for a new dress, or or maybe it's going to be a trip to the Sea of Galilee, or maybe it's going to be her own party for her and her friends. And then you can imagine that moment of awkward silence when she comes in and asks for a man's head on a platter. It's gruesome, isn't it? Gruesome in its details. Well, Herod is trapped. He's trapped precisely because his moral compass is completely based on what people will think of him. It's hard to have a lot of sympathy for a man so driven by the fear of others and their opinions. But you note that the text says that Herod was exceedingly sorry. It's an interesting Greek phrase that's only used one other time in the New Testament. And that time is when it's used to describe Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane in his agony. And so you picture Herod here racked with regret, torn between the fear and the consequences of either decision, not wanting to kill John, whom he knows is righteous and popular among the people, and yet feeling that he must save face before the leading men of Galilee. 
Perhaps he even has visions uh, in his mind of, of the gossip going throughout the Roman Empire of, of that silly Herod who made a great promise but wouldn't carry it out because he loved this camel-wearing prophet who ate locusts and honey. And so we see how true it is that the fear of man and what man thinks of you and will say of you and do to you is a snare. And yet the fear of man won the day here. Because of his guests, Mark says, Herod saves face and gives the command to behead John and bring the platter to Salome. And so it is here that a man in authority lost his heart because of the opinions of others. And as a result, a righteous man lost his head. So this is the events of the story, but what does this story teach us? Well, first and foremost, this story highlights the dangers of the fear of man. Now, just to clarify, when we talk about the fear of man, we are, are talking first about the desire or even the need to have people approve of us and accept us and think well of us, as well as the fear of being either rejected or ridiculed or embarrassed or thought poorly of. And certainly we all know what that feels like, don't we? We know how this tugs at our hearts. Peer pressure the desire for acceptance, people-pleasing, wanting someone to notice us, the fear of criticism or of being left out. These are just some of the expressions of the fear of man and the ways that we desire other people's good opinions and the fear of rejection or ridicule in our own lives. And it's, and it's all over Scripture, too. This is not the only episode. You might think of, of Peter thinking about the fear of man as he stood in the courtyard while Jesus was on trial, wondering, what are these people going to think of me? What might they do to me? And so denying Jesus three times. Or maybe you think later in Peter's life of how he got together with a group of Jewish Christians and was so concerned about their good opinion and potential criticism that he refused to eat with some fellow Gentile Christians sacrificing unity in Christ for their good opinion. Or maybe you think of what the Bible says about Pilate, how it says, wishing to please the crowds, he released Barabbas and sent Jesus to be crucified, though he knew Jesus was innocent. We could, we could multiply these examples of the fear of man, the desire for good of opinion. But note that this pursuit will always fail and always leads to a snare. We will never be secure because the good opinion of others is constantly changing and it constantly needs to be re-earned. The pressure of living according to the opinions of others was captured well by the band 21 Pilots and their 2015 song, Stressed Out. Many of you would have heard this song, but the song opens declaring, I wish I'd found some better sounds that no one's ever heard. I wish I had a better voice that sang some better words. I wish I found some chords in an order that is new. I wish I didn't have to rhyme every time I sang. I was told when I get older, all my fears would shrink. But now I'm insecure and I care what people think. Doesn't that capture the spirit of, of how we approach things so often? Such as the attempt to secure the, the acceptance and affirmation of others. And it was no less a famous person than Madonna who once told Vogue magazine, even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I still am somebody. My struggle has never ended and I guess it never will. We see the pressure, the snare of living for public praise and opinion 
But we know how this temptation looks in our own lives too, don't we? Don't we know the scenarios we face? Will I go up and welcome the new visiting student who's standing alone against the wall? Or will I conveniently not notice her in order to go hang out with the cool crowd? Will I refuse to go along with the gossip, the language, the sinful actions of friends at school or co-workers at work, even if it means I earn their mockery and lose their friendship? Will I rally support for my cause against a person that I've been hurt by? Or will I bear with one another and honor one another, covering a multitude of sins? Am I overcommitted in my life because I can't bring myself to say no and risk disappointing people? Am I working so hard to please my boss that I'm sacrificing my family in the process? Or did I just respond to my child because that was just or because I want to save face so that others don't think I'm a bad parent? You know, we know how these things go, right? We can multiply the examples of the way the fear of man plays in our hearts. So what can keep us from this snare? Well, we need two things. First, We need to commit to caring about what God thinks of me more than what other people think of me. Proverbs 29, 25 goes on this way. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You know, Peter got it wrong at least twice. We mentioned those situations, but Peter also got it right in Acts 5, 29, when he stood up and said to the council of Pharisees, We must obey God rather than man. And we know how this works in real life, don't we? We've we've been in situations where there's two groups who want want us to do different things and we have to choose who we're going to honor. I mean, any, any high school boy knows this scenario where you might be willing to even be laughed at by all your friends if it means doing something that earns the praise of the girl you have a crush on. Or maybe at work we can ignore our boss's complaints and critiques if we care more about our kids' delight when we come home to be with them. The question is, whose good opinion matters to you? Whose approval and acceptance do we want? God's or those around us? And of course, God's opinion is the only one that matters, both in this life and in the life to come. And in fact, even while we focused on Herod here, John the Baptist set us the right example, didn't he? Speaking the truth even when the governing authorities would put his life at risk, speaking the truth, even when those who were leading popular men would be hurt by it. John set us the example of caring what God thought, not those around us. And so this is the question. What will God think of me? Will God look at my life and see my sin and my determination to live the way I want and the way others want me to live? Or will God look at me and see me with Jesus, who died for me to make me his? May we be willing to be laughed at, ridiculed, rejected, ignored, left behind. What can man do to me, the psalmist asked, remember? In order to honor and please God, who has stamped us as forgiven and accepted in his sight, if we have come through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And may we be motivated in our life more than anything else by the desire to hear those words on the last day. Well done, my good and faithful servant. 
It is his opinion, not man's, that we long for. That's the first step. But the second step, as as Ed Welch puts it so well, when we are considering those around us, we need to commit to asking, what is my duty towards others rather than what can I get from others? See, the fear of man, the desire for acceptance, is always looking to get something from those around us. And if I need the approval or the acceptance or the praise or the recognition from those around me in order to feel secure, then I will regularly act to get those things and I will find myself in the snare that Proverbs talked about. But what if my first thought instead was, what does God call me to do for others? What does God call me to do in order to love others? Ed Welch put it this way. He said, our problem is that we need other people for ourselves more than we love them for their sake and the glory of God. And so our task is to commit ourselves. The task that God gives us is to need other people less and to love them more. If we look at others not as those who can give us recognition that will satisfy our hearts and give us security, and rather as people God has called us to sacrifice for, to give for, to love for their sake and his glory, we have a path forward. This is not always easy, of course. We know our hearts, and our hearts want to promote ourselves again and again and again, day after day after day. But we are not on our own if we have put our faith in Christ. Because he has given us his Holy Spirit to dwell in us and make us new creations. And as Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5, when he talks about being made new creations, what does he say? He says through him we make it our aim to please him. That is our goal. And so this is the first application of our text this morning. To commit to pleasing God and to loving others not looking to others for our security or approval. But I think there's a second application from our text this morning, and it has to do with our conscience. You read this text from Herod's perspective in light of his conscience. You know what our conscience is? Our conscience is a gift from God. It's that that voice in our hearts that warns us when we believe that we are doing something wrong or clears us when we believe we have done what is right. However, it's important for us to understand that our conscience is different than the Holy Spirit. Our conscience is part of us, and therefore our conscience can be wrong. And not only can our conscience be wrong, but there are things we can do and choose to do that will train our conscience in good ways or bad ways. Think about what the Bible tells us. We we can have a weak conscience that is out of line with God's word by having too many rules, too strict of boundaries that go beyond God's word. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 8. But on the other hand, we can also have consciences that are emboldened to sin, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8.10 and Titus 1.15. These would be consciences with too few rules that are not following all of Scripture's instructions then we can also have consciences that are seared with a hot iron. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.2, which is a conscience repeatedly suppressed until it no longer convicts us of sin any longer. And when we think about our consciences, we really have three options. Option number one is to strengthen our conscience in line with God's word day by day. 
Option number two is to calibrate our consciences to some other standard, the culture around us or what other people think and attune our consciences to that instead. Or option number three is to ignore our conscience, suppress our conscience, and sear it with a hot iron so that it speaks more quietly and less often so that we aren't bothered by it at all. So how will we approach our conscience? In the first half of this story, Herod's conscience is kicking. He knows that John is a righteous and holy man, and Herod hears him gladly, and yet he also ignores his conscience, because despite knowing he is a righteous man who speaks the truth, he puts him in prison and locks him up because of the opinions of Herodias and others. And as even any secular psychologist will tell you, when you justify an action despite knowing it's wrong, it will only be easier to justify that action the next time. And that's exactly what we see from Herod. Because after Salome's request for John's head, John's conscience kicks again. He is exceedingly sorry. And yet, once again, for the sake of others' opinions, he goes ahead and does what he knows is unjust. And so we see in Herod's own life that he continues to make decisions ignoring his conscience which only leads him into further sin and every time we hear our conscience but ignore it we dull its voice the next time around that's why the bible says in romans 14:23 that we should never violate our conscience in other words what it's saying is if we do something believing it is sinful we are sinning we wound or dull our conscience undermining this precious gift from the lord So instead, Scripture calls us to listen to our conscience. But we can't just listen to our conscience because, again, our conscience can be wrong. Our conscience needs to be continually recalibrated so that it is in line with Scripture, not cultural opinions or the opinions of of others. I think our consciences are kind of like your bathroom scale. You know how your bathroom scale is, right? It's not always right. It starts from the wrong place sometimes. And sometimes that's really good for your self-esteem. And sometimes it's not so helpful for your self-esteem. But it's going to be wrong whichever way unless it starts at zero. And so it is with our consciences. That it's going to lead us astray unless it starts 100% resting on the Word of God. So how do we calibrate our consciences according to Scripture? Only by continuing to read the scriptures day by day, continuing to hold all of our beliefs and our practices up to God's word. Pastor John MacArthur put it well this way when he said, The conscience's effectiveness is determined by the amount of pure light we expose it to and by how clean we keep it. It can be encouraged and sharpened in accordance with God's word or error Human wisdom, wrong moral influences, or cultural preferences can corrupt, cloud, and defile our conscience. So the question is, how diligently will we daily recalibrate our consciences according to God's Word? You know, in 1935, two of Boeing's best and most experienced pilots crashed a B-17 aircraft, killing both of them. An investigation afterwards found that the pilots had missed a routine procedure before takeoff, forgetting to disengage a lock that prevented the wings from moving in the wind while parked. 
And the company wondered if this routine step could be forgotten and missed by pilots who have flown thousands and thousands of times, it could be missed by anyone. And so what did Boeing do? Well, Boeing responded by developing the pre-flight checklist and requiring every pilot, no matter how many times they had flown, to go through the pre-flight checklist before taking off. It was their effort to bring them back to the truth that would keep them safe no matter how many times they had done what they had done before. And I think this is a perfect analogy for how we need to approach God's word. Because even those of us who have grown up in the church and heard God's word again and again and have read God's word maybe hundreds of times can be so easily swayed by another person's opinion, can be so easily tempted by sin or can so easily find our conscience drifting and out of line with God's word. And we need to continually review and calibrate our consciences that they might be captive in every area to the word of God. And so the call of this is to see God's word as our pre-flight checklist for every day, coming back to be in line with it in every area. So here we have this story of Herod Antipas. A story that should serve as a warning to us. It should serve as a warning for how strong the temptation is to act based on the opinions of others. It should serve as a warning for how greatly the fear of man can ensnare us. It should serve for a warning under how easy it is to ignore our conscience and so sear it, making it easier and easier to ignore it day by day. So my prayer is that this story's warning will push us all the more strongly back to the Word of God, which is our strong foundation, our guide to truth. And my prayer is that this passage will point us all the more strongly back to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who covers all our sin with His blood on the cross and who calls us to serve Him for His glory, to trust Him and His Word over against the fear of man and the opinions of others. And so may we do this. May we rest on his word. And may we look forward to, as the one opinion that matters, his final words, his word of acceptance on the last day. May we do this for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we have in this story of John the Baptist a warning, but a warning that echoes so strongly in our own hearts because we know how much we fear the criticism of others. And how much we long for the acceptance and the praise of others. How we long to be approved by the right people. How we fear to be left out. Father, we know how easy it is to ignore our conscience in something small and find it easier to ignore it in something bigger the next time. We know how quickly our conscience can be pulled by our hearts, the culture, or sin, and find itself out of line with God's word. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would use your word to draw us back to yourself and to your word as our strong foundation. May we look to you. May we long for your good opinion, for your acceptance and approval. And may we hear your call to look at how we can love and serve others, not try to find our security from them. Father, we pray for these things and ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. 
You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.